Our Father, thank you uh, that in your word you reveal what our hearts are like. That in your word you test us and reveal our sin to us and then you draw us to Christ. I pray that you'll be doing that for us this morning. Amen. Matthew chapter, 13, uh, chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Day by day, uh, moment by moment, what decides the decisions uh, you make? You get out of bed in the morning. Uh, what decides what you do next? Uh, or you go to work? What decides your attitude uh, in the work that you do? Uh, if you're a parent, you have kids and you look after them. What decides what kind of parent uh, you are? Well, if you follow Christ this morning, then ultimately you know that whatever he says should decide what we do and what we don't do. Uh, Christ is our king. And we follow him by obeying his word. But what happens when what he wants us to do isn't what I want to do? Uh, Sometimes we obey Christ because, well, we know it's the right thing to do. But we we do it with a grimace. And we do it without joy. And perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning, and it's a pleasure to have you. You're really uh, welcome. Uh, But the reason you're not a Christian is, well, Christ doesn't seem that great. Following him doesn't seem that attractive. The way that you do things, well, to be honest, seems better. 
Well, I think this account of Herod is showing us why we sometimes struggle to obey Jesus or come to him at all for that fact. And it's because of this. Jesus' word conflicts with our sinful uh, desires. I think that's what we can see in this account of Herod. Jesus' word conflicts with our sinful desires. Why do people reject uh, Jesus' rule? Well, it's because they're ruled by their sinful uh, desire. Uh, Just a word and desire. Desire itself is not a bad thing. God made us to desire. But it's what we desire is the problem. So just look over to chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus says, Our hearts have a problem. For after the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. It's these desires that conflict with Jesus' rule. Okay? Uh, so verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, Herod misidentifies Jesus as John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Now remember who John the Baptist is. He's a prophet who, pre- who prepares the way for Jesus. John's opening words in the Gospel of Matthew are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus announces that the kingdom is here. Whose kingdom? Well, Jesus' kingdom. John lays the path for Jesus to walk on, if you like, if it helps. He's a bit like Jesus' herald. And like a herald, he is sent forth with the words of the king. And the way you treat the king's herald symbolizes the way you treat the king. You reject John, you symbolically reject Jesus. And in this passage, Herod kills John. He rejects him. Why? Well, it's because John's word conflicts with his sinful desires. John's word is there in verse 4. He says, it is not lawful for you to have her. That is John's word to him. Uh, Matthew fills in the picture for us. Herod has taken his brother's wife, Herodias, as his own. This is adultery. This is covetousness. This is theft. This is a lack of love wrapped up in a single action. And it seems to me that Herodias comes to Herod very willingly. And so John says to them, Herod, that's not lawful. We shouldn't do that. I wonder, how, how should Herod have responded? What do you think? Well, I think he should have been struck with guilt. He should have repented. When we find that Jesus' word calls for change, well, we should change. But Herod doesn't, because a word conflicts with his sinful desires. For him to obey, he would have to forsake his lust. They'd have to repent of his theft. They'd have to restore Herodias to his brother. But he chooses to obey his sinful desires rather than Jesus. Now, children, if someone says something to you that you don't like, what kind of things might you do? If someone says something you don't like, what might you do? Yeah, abs? Pardon? You might tell someone, you might say, hey, this, this guy's saying things I don't like. That's absolutely right. Things like that. You might walk away from them. You might say, I don't like that. Or you might argue with them. But when someone chooses to be ruled by their sinful desires rather than Jesus, they shut down his word. When they hear Jesus' word and they don't like it, they shut it down. And we see Herod shut down John's word. He silences John. Verse 3, he seizes John. He binds him, he throws him in prison. In fact, verse 5, his desire is to kill him. Um, He's only held back by another conflicting desire, which is to be popular with the people. And people like John. And so because he wants to be popular, he doesn't want to lose power. 
Uh, he doesn't kill John there and then. He's content to shut down the word by placing John in prison. Uh, but for Herodias in this story, it's not enough. She too is ruled by her sinful desires. The word is locked away, but it's not properly, not fully silent. So when Herod's love of pleasure leads him to make a foolish oath in verse 7, she pounces. She uses her daughter to murder John. She asks for John's head on a platter. And in verse 9, the king submits. He's ruled again by his desires. Not pleasure this time, but power and popularity. Unwilling to murder John because it might harm his power. He does it anyway, so he remains popular with his subjects and servants. Verse 9, because of his guests and his oaths, that is because he doesn't want to be seen as an oath breaker, he murders John. For Herod and Herodias, their desires rule them. They are, if you like, they're almost enslaved by them. And so they must shut, shut down any word that comes in and challenges them, conflicts with them. It's an ugly scene, by the way. It's a miscarriage of justice. An innocent man executed and his head placed on a platter and given to a teenage girl. You allow your sin to rule you and it may lead you to very ugly places. But, but how Herod and his wife behave is just a little picture of how the world treats the word of God. Sinful desire rules people. And so when the word of Christ comes and competes for that rule, people shut it down. They silence the Bible. Think further abroad, think of China, think of North Korea. The Bible, to be honest, conflicts with their government's agenda. Apparently in China, I heard a five-year plan has been implemented to retranslate the Bible so it fits uh, with their socialist ideology. In North Korea, capital, capital punishment is issued for those in Scripture's possession. And in that, we hear the echoes of John, John's execution. Those in possession of God's word are permanently silenced. What about closer to home, though? What about the sexual liberation movement? What drove it? Well, it was desire. A person's sexual appetite is law. I desire to have sex with so-and-so, and if they agree, then that's what's right. Desire becomes law. Follow your heart, and you'll be happy. Choose pleasure, says the newest Galaxy chocolate advert. I was at a cafe this past week, and I saw a notice for a feminist book club, and it said this. It said, you should never act against yourself. That is, always obey your desires. Your desire is law, never disobey it. But the problem is people think of only what they desire, okay? Uh, but they do not question whether they should desire it, whether it's good for them, whether it will truly lead to flourishing. So when Christ comes and says by his word that it doesn't, his word gets shut down. The Bible is lab labeled as archaic or bigoted, or misogynistic, or worse. But what about us as Christians? Do Christians ever reject God's word for the love of sin? Well, yes, I think we all do. For all of us, when we read God's words, it will conflict with our sinful desires. Now, in Christ, we are set free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. Uh, but sometimes our sinful desire entices us back in. Jesus says, don't lust, but well, pornography feels so good. Jesus says, don't lie, but when I lie, it makes me feel better. 
Jesus says, love your neighbour, but my neighbour is an alcoholic, abusive, drunk. He doesn't deserve to be loved. And so we subtly, like Herod, rebel against his word. And it might look different. It might be that we close our Bible in our quiet time and we start flicking through Facebook instead. Or we simply pretend to forget what we've read. We, we, we refuse to let God's word challenge our desires. Or we make excuses. I'm too weak. It's too tempting. It's unavoidable. I want it too much. Or perhaps you're not a Christian at all here this morning. But you've heard what the Bible says and what Jesus says. But you're refusing to own him as king. You're refusing to enter his king- kingdom Can I gently suggest to you that it might be because you prefer to be ruled by your own desires? You know that becoming a Christian and following Christ as king will mean change. It will mean obeying his voice. It might mean giving up something that you hold dear, a relationship, or stopping a guilty pleasure. When our our desires command us, we make ourselves king. And ultimately, you don't want to be a Christian. Because you know I mean giving your crown to Christ. Perhaps you ask, why should I give my crown to him? After all, here and now, fulfilling my desires feels pretty good. Living life as I like feels satisfying. Instant gratification is great. Can I say Christians make the same mistake? We ask ourselves, is obeying Christ's word really good for me? Is it really better? And to be honest, it probably doesn't always feel that way. And so as we turn to the second half of our passage this morning, ask yourself this question. Why should I come to Jesus as king? Why should I desire Christ and obey him rather than my sin? Why should I give my crown to him? Why should I come to Jesus as king? Okay, and I think the second account of the feeding of the 5,000 shows us exactly why we should. Notice here that Jesus' rule is presented in parallel to Herod's rule. They're both people who give. Uh, So verse 7, Herod Herod promises with an oath to give, and later he commanded it to be given, and then the head of John the Baptist is given to the girl. Give, give, give. Jesus also gives... Verse 16, he says, you give them something to eat. Verse 19, he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and they gave them to the crowds. Herod and Jesus also both issue a single command. Verse 19, Herod commanded it to be given. Verse 19, Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down. Commanded, ordered. It's the same word. And they also both give a banquet. Uh, One provides it in a luxury Uh, of his palace and the other in the wilderness of a desert. And the parallels are obvious. We're meant to be comparing them. But the contrast is stark. Herod commands murder and gives death on a plate. Jesus commands people to sit and then fills them up with good things. So here's the question. Would you rather be a servant in the household of Herod or uh, in the crowd uh, at the feet of Jesus? Would you rather eat under the banquet ruled by sin or from the hand of Jesus. In other words, why should I come to Jesus as king in everything? Uh, In the passage, we have a crowd. It's meant to be an example to us. We have a crowd who comes to Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus withdraws when he hears of John's death 
uh, perhaps because his, his life is in danger, or perhaps he's withdrawing in judgment of Herod, or perhaps because he wants to, he wants to grieve his dead cousin, John the Baptist. But, but whatever the reason, he wants to be alone. He goes to a desolate place, desolate place in a boat, uh, and yet the crowds come to him anyway. They hear where Jesus is go- has gone, and they chase him into the wilderness on foot. They're focused on Jesus. They leave everything behind. They want him, they desire him, and they come to him. And they gather. And when, verse 14, Jesus gets out of his boat and sees the crowd, what does he do? How does he respond to those who come to him? Well, he doesn't get back in the boat. No, he stays. Passage says he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When people come to them, when people come to him, Jesus has compassion. He cares. He doesn't turn them away. The last time Jesus was recorded as having compassion in the Gospel of Matthew was in chapter 9, verse 36. Just look back there with me. Chapter 9, verse 36. says when he saw the crowds, so in, a, in many ways a similar situation to here, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why does Jesus have compassion on the crowds? Why does he turn to heal the people? Because they're harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. When he looks on us, he sees our brokenness and he loves us. If you like, we're a bit like an ill-disciplined dog let loose in a room full of treats. Left to our own devices, devices, we run hither and thither, gorging ourselves on our appetites and making ourselves sick. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but how do you feel when you look at someone at the mercy of their own desires? When you see an alcoholic out cold on the street or a gambler deep in debt or a compulsive eater, ugly and obese, how do you feel? Disgust? maybe ambivalence, maybe pity. Well, Jesus has compassion. Maybe you know that your desires have left you in a bit of a mess. And you're kind of too scared to come to Jesus because you don't know how he'll respond. That's why you won't let his word confront your sin. You're too scared of what it's going to reveal. Maybe you see him as a king who's going to pounce on your problems. He's going to show up your messiness and then turn away in disgust. No, the point is Jesus knows what you're like, harassed and helpless, and responds with compassion, not coldness. When disciples try and send the people away, he says they need not go away. He would be with them. He wants to be with those who come to him. But not only does he have compassion for people who come to him, he he provides for them as well. Despite the the disciples' obvious sarcasm and doubt in verse 17, he responds to the hunger of the people. He produces food miraculously from five loaves and two fish. He feeds 5,000 men besides women and children. So we're talking probably at least 10,000. A king who cares but does not provide is not really a king worth following. Jesus is both. And notice that his provision is not dependent on our resources. He can provide exactly how he pleases and from what he pleases. He's not limited like we are. But importantly, he doesn't provide randomly. The people are hungry and so he provides food. Earlier, the people are sick. So he heals them. 
He cares, he provides, and his provision satisfies their needs. Verse 20, it's an important verse. They all ate and were satisfied. I wonder, have you ever given money uh, to a homeless man? And uh, It can be a really good thing to do. I'm not slamming it. Uh, but there's a classic problem, isn't there? Uh, money might not be quite what he needs. You don't know how he's going to use it. You might well just use it to fuel a drug addiction. Children, what, what, what does a homeless man need? Why does, he, if you like, why does he sleep on the street? Well, what he needs is a home. A homeless man needs a home, doesn't he? And similarly, Jesus' provision satisfies what we need. Okay? Uh, do you, I wonder, do you realise that? When Jesus calls us to submit to his rule, it's not because he's power hungry. It's because he wants to satisfy us. He doesn't issue commands, if you like, to fill himself or take power or abuse, abuse people. No, he issues commands to sit people down and to fill them up. What Jesus provides satisfies. Uh, but what, what is the provision that he provides? What is it that satisfies us? When I say that Jesus satisfies, what do I mean? Does it mean that he's going to give us material wealth or happy families or, or the pleasurable lifestyle we crave? Does it mean he's automatically going to cure our diseases as he does here or fill our bellies? Well, no, I, I don't think it can mean that because then he'd just be satisfying our worldly desires once more. No, Jesus satisfies because he gives us our heart's true desire. Why does Jesus satisfy more than sin? Why should you come to him as your king and everything? Because he gives what our hearts truly desire. Last week in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, we, we saw that to give up everything for the sake of knowing God leaves you full of joy. Why? Because we're made to know God. Deep down in every human being, being's heart is a desire to know God, whether we acknowledge it as true or not. Do you remember that quote from Augustine, an ancient Christian father? He says, our hearts are restless. He's saying to God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We're made to know God and we're restless till we do. And so in feeding the 5,000, Jesus is hinting at why his rule will bring satisfaction. Just flick to Exodus chapter 16 with me. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16 contains a very famous account in which God, after having rescued his people from the Israelites, feeds them with manna in the desert, with bread from heaven. And just notice with me the parallels between this account and our account. So uh, verse 1, the Israelites are in uh, the wilderness. Uh, Jesus and the crowds are in a desolate place. Verse 4, God promises bread from heaven. Jesus looks to heaven to multiply the bread. And both the provision of bread is completely miraculous. It comes basically from nowhere. But perhaps, I think most tellingly, chapter 16, verse 18, it says, each of them gathered, that is gathered the manna, as much as they could eat, do you hear? They all ate and were satisfied. And what is the purpose of God sending bread from heaven? Well, it's there in verse 12. 
At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who then is it that lays a banquet in the wilderness for his people to feast on in Matthew chapter 14? Can you hear what Jesus is saying? Know that I am the Lord your God. And this feast is just a foretaste of the feast we will enjoy with him in heaven, not because of the food or or wine that's in heaven at that banquet, although those things will be good, but because we'll be feasting with him, we'll be in the presence of our gods, and our hearts will once and for all be satisfied. Our hearts will be at rest and finally full. But one last thing before we finish. How is it that Jesus brings us to God? Because I think this passage is telling us that as well. And it's through his, through his body broken on the cross for us. It's through the breaking of his body. Our, our sinful desires deserve death. That's what the Bible tells us again and again. We see that pictured in the Count of Herod. He chooses sin over Christ. And what's the result? Well, it's death. Uh, But it's not his death, it's John's. It should be Herod's death, but it's John's. Just as John's ministry lays the way, if you like, for Jesus' ministry, John's death foreshadows Jesus' death. Herod's sin leads to John's death, our sin crucified Christ. And we see Jesus' death foreshadowed in the feeding of the 5,000. I wonder, can you hear the echoes of the Lord's Supper here? Verse 19. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. Take, bless, break, give. Matthew 26, verse 26, rather the Lord's Supper. It says, Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take, bless, break, give. The same pattern is repeated in the Lord's Supper points to the cross, to his blood poured out for us, his body broken for us. So then, in this feeding of the 5,000, we're also being pointed to the cross. How is it that we can be satisfied in Christ? Well, it's because he died for us that we might know God. It's his death that brings satisfaction. It's his broken body seen in the broken bread that brings satisfaction. Do you see He satisfies us because he makes a way for us to know God. And if we enter into his kingdom, if we wholeheartedly forsake all sin, one day we will feast with him in heaven and our hearts will be at rest. Why should I come to Jesus as king? Because he brings us to God and fills our heart's true desire. Where would you rather be? In the household of Herod? We're at the feet of Christ. What would you rather have rule you? Your sinful desires or Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, too often we confess we obey the voice of our desires, we listen to our hearts, and we chase after things which don't bring satisfaction at all, that don't bring the joy that you tell us is found in Christ. Father, please would we uh, not be like Herod, would we forsake our sin, would we repent and would we come uh, to Christ and obey him in everything 
that we do. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.